I love Christmas, and I love it a lot. And not the least of the reasons I love Christmas, by the way, our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. Not the least of the reasons I love Christmas is the music. Um, I love getting to this time of year because if you catch the right stuff, um, music is focused on, on, on the birth of Jesus, if you listen to the right stuff. And it's, it's really neat that as soon as that calendar day flips over from Thanksgiving, there it is. There's Christmas music. There's the Christmas carols. And I don't know that my favorite Christmas song is technically a carol, uh, <clears throat> but my favorite Christmas song is, uh, is, is Mary Did You Know. I know all of you are familiar with that song. I think it was originally penned by, by Mark Lowry. Uh, but... Um, in the years since he originally penned it, I mean, it has proved to me to be an extremely powerful Christmas song. And it's a rhetorical question, if you've never heard it, in which the person singing the song, Mary, did you know um, that your baby boy would give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would calm a storm with his hand? Um, did you know that your baby boy... And then it goes through all the different things that Jesus is going to do until finally says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Um, did you know um, that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb and that the sleeping child you're holding is the great I am? That it, It's one of the greatest Christmas songs I think there's ever been because that very last line captures the essence of exactly what happened at Christmas and why it's such an unfathomable, for lack of a better word, unbelievable thing, but we believe it, that God Himself, the entirety of the great I Am, has taken on flesh and become one of us. But like I said, it's a rhetorical question because of course, Mary did know. Now she did not know all of the things that Jesus was going to do, she did not know that he was going to walk on water. She didn't know all the people he was going to heal. She didn't know all the specific things. But the one thing she did know was who he was. She knows that. I mean, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning. Anthony can bear witness to this. We talked about this in Sunday school where, where Gabriel says to her in Luke one thirty two. Now, this is not our text. says, he will be great. And he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And then 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And in that particular age, a son was almost considered to be a carbon copy of their father. That the son stood in and would be equal with his father one day when he came into his inheritance. So to say that this is the son of God is to say this is God. So Mary knew who he was, even if she didn't know everything that he was going to do in his earthly ministry. And the passage that we're going to read today is one of the more famous passages in the Christmas story that I don't think I have ever actually heard it read at a Christmas service. Um, so um, if you will stand with me from the, out of the respect of the reading of God's Word, we're going to read one of the very first Christmas songs 
as sang by Jesus' earthly mother. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has regarded the lowly state of His maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is on those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. So we'll pray and ask God to bless this, and then we'll be seated. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for your gift to us that very first Christmas. And Lord, we thank you that you who are mighty has done great things. Pray that you bless this sermon, that you would change all of our hearts through it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, This passage, if you've ever heard the word uh, Magnificat, That's the traditional name for this passage because the very first word of this song in Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible, which used to be his translation of the Bible into the language that everybody spoke, which we don't all speak Latin now, but the very first word of Jerome's translation of the Bible into Latin is the word magnificat. Um, That's Mary saying, my soul magnifies uh, the Lord. So today what I want us to see when we look at this passage is... Mary cannot contain her joy over the merciful actions of God specifically toward her. Now, this was gonna this is gonna affect a lot of people. I mean, we're we're certainly affected by what Mary is singing about in this passage, right? I mean, the coming of Jesus Christ, that, that has a small effect on us today. Correct? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But Specifically, Mary knows it's going to affect lots of other people. She knows that. But what she is singing about is, let me tell you what God has done for me. And Christian, every single one of you in here, we can talk all day long about what God has done for people in general, but every single one of you ought to be able to say, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in me. That I can say I am blessed because the one who is mighty, he who, has might, who is mighty has done great things for me. That every single person who knows the Lord Jesus Christ should have that testimony. Now, I'm sorry, none of y'all in here are going to give virgin birth one day. It's not happening. You are not going to be gifted in in that particular way. This was a unique blessing that belonged to Mary. But do you know what? God has unique blessings for you that didn't belong to Mary. But God doesn't ever... Everybody gets a different story. And we're going to see that uh, today. I want us to see three actions that God has taken that are supremely praiseworthy. That any of us can latch on to and grab and it can become... It can become our own. 
And first, I want us to see that God regards the lowly. And that's in verses 46 through 50. In verse 46, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. And behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. So <clears throat> the Gospel of Luke is really interesting. That Luke was written... Uh, after the fact, Luke and Acts were written probably as a unit. So if you look in your Bible, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. Uh, that's a little bit, I don't want to say deceptive. I'm not saying the Bible's trying to deceive you. That's not what's happening. That Luke and Acts are actually part of a two-volume set. And it's easy to miss that because the, the early church and your Bible translators have grouped the four Gospels together, which means you shove the book of John in between Luke and Acts. That if you would have picked up the books, if Luke finished writing them and handed them to you, you would have gotten Luke and Acts butted right up against each other. Right? So Acts picks up right where Luke leaves off and keeps telling the story. Uh, when Luke wrote Luke and Acts... He was writing for primarily a Gentile audience. If you read the book of Acts, which we as a church just got through going through, the book of Acts is the story of how the gospel gets taken to the ends of the earth. Uh, that it goes from the Jewish people out to the Gentiles. So it makes sense from Luke's current perspective where he's going to be. He is writing primarily for a Gentile audience. Which is what makes this passage so interesting. This is not Gentile-like literature. It's not. This is very, very Jewish literature. Uh, Jewish poetry, in fact, I'm going to go back, I'm going to go off script for a second because I want to show you, if I can, exactly how Jewish uh, this is. Um, that this is not something that uh, Israel... Oh, here we go. Listen to this. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. See if this sounds familiar. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. For no one is holy like the Lord. There is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children have become feeble. Does this sound similar to what Mary is saying? Yes. Sounds very similar. In a book primarily written to Gentiles, you have an entire, just about chapter, entire little section here of very Hebrew poetry. Now, why do Gentiles care about this? Well, here's the fact of the matter. Whether or not Gentiles care about it, God does. And it's His book. So He can put it where He wants. And this is a song that bubbles out of the overflowing soul of Mary as she is speaking to her cousin Elizabeth. And a 
very important feature of Hebrew poetry that we need to talk about for this first one is if you read English poetry, uh, like if you think about Dr. Seuss, all right? I don't, I don't, it's probably not the best example of English poetry. But when you think about Dr. Seuss, it rhymes, right? Like you read it, you know, the, the line one ends in a sound, line two ends in a similar sound. Hebrew poetry doesn't do that. You say, well, how in the world is it poetry? Well, if English poetry rhymes sounds, Hebrew poetry rhymes ideas. It does it through something called parallelism, where a lot of times the poet will say something in one line and say something similar in the second line, and it's up to the reader to figure out the connections between the two. That's because a lot of times poetry was meant to be meditated on, and it's meant to be thought about, and that's a structure that you can roll over in your mind. And think about, well, Mary's song does this. So when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Do you see the similarities in those two lines? But there are differences. And they're important. When she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Well, what does it mean to magnify? Uh, Magnify, if you think, you know, you were a kid, you know, maybe if you were a little, little boy. Uh, I, I was really excited. I got a little detective kit one time. I had a little police badge, and I had a little magnifying glass. I had some little handcuffs. I had a little toy gun. I was like, yes, I'm going to catch all the bad guys. I'm going to find all the clues. And I, I didn't ever find a clue, but I had a magnifying glass, and that was cool. Um, a magnifying glass is when you, you take a, a, a small characteristic, and you hold the magnifying glass over it, and you what? You make it bigger so that you can see it. So when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she's saying what, I, what my soul is doing is my soul is going to amplify God so that all of you guys can, can see exactly who I'm talking about. I'm going to expound to you all of the reasons why God is praiseworthy. My soul magnifies the Lord. And then she says, and my spirit has rejoiced in God. Now there's another couple words after that, God. But I want to stop on has rejoiced. Uh, Every single word of this book is inspired of God, exactly the way he meant it to be. Which means when there are small differences, even sometimes in something as small as the grammar, we need to pay attention to them. That Mary says, my soul magnifies, and that's in the Greek present tense. That means that it magnifies and it continues to magnify. That it's going to continue to magnify. That it's ongoing action. But... Has rejoiced is in a tense that means my soul has rejoiced at a specific point in time. In other words, I'm going to continually praise God because of something that has happened, a specific event. Now, what event in the life of a young girl named Mary do you think has recently occurred that might be praiseworthy? It might be the visitation of someone named Gabriel who says, Hail, highly favored of the Lord. God is with you. You found favor in His sight. And she was scared at what kind of greeting that was. She wanted to know what it meant. And the angel said, The Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you and you're going to conceive in your womb and you're going to bear a son. And He's going to be called the Son of God. And he will be given the throne of his father, David. And Mary says, my soul has rejoiced in this. That God has done a great thing. But she doesn't just say God. She says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my what? Savior. Savior. Now, 
We as Protestants don't believe this. But the Roman Catholic Church will tell you that not only was Jesus born without sin, there was also something called the Immaculate Conception. Because they will say, well, if Jesus was born without sin, he he didn't inherit any sin from Joseph because Joseph wasn't his earthly father, right? They'll say, but he was born of Mary. So for him to prevent getting sin from Mary, she had to have been born sinless too. Well, there's only one problem with that. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, it actually says the opposite. Right here. When Mary says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my what? Savior. Now, what did Jesus come to save us from? Our sins. So if God is Mary's Savior and Jesus came to save us from our sins, what did Jesus come to save Mary from? Her sins. That this child, Mary, did you know that this child that you've delivered will soon deliver you? That Mary is rejoicing because the child that she's about to bear is not only going to save Israel, he's going to save the world. And she's in on the ground floor. And she's rejoicing in this before anybody else knows to. So my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary is magnifying the salvation that God is bringing through Jesus. And then in parallel, in verse 48, is a little bit different than in 46 and 47. Mary says, For he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. And you know what? All generations that recognize Jesus as the Messiah do call Mary blessed. Not because she is, you know, the, the quote-unquote blessed Virgin Mary. We don't pray to her. I pray to, I pray to one God. But being privileged with being able to carry to term the Messiah, that's a pretty neat blessing. That's pretty unique. And Mary says, me. I was lowly. I was nothing. And God looked down here and saw me in my nothingness and did something so great in me that when other people see the way God has treated me, they will call me blessed. In verse 49, He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is on those who fear Him from generation to generation. You want your application, church? That's it. Has he who is mighty done great things for you? First, let's talk in general, right? Because Mary started in general. First off, you can't ever say that God doesn't love you and God hasn't come after you because God sent his son to take on flesh and come to earth to die for you so that you might be saved. Your spirit can rejoice in God, your savior. So he's worth praise just for that. But do you know what? That involves everybody in here. Everybody can say that. But do you know that that God is intimately involved in every one of your lives that's here? And that you ought to have something for which you can praise God and say, let my soul magnify the Lord. Let me tell you why God is worthy of praise. Let me tell you why God is rejoiced, why my spirit has rejoiced 
in God my Savior. That I can tell you from my point of view, when I was seven years old, a great miracle was done and that God reached down from heaven with His Holy Spirit and told the heart of a little seven-year-old boy that he was a lost sinner that needed to repent. I can tell you that about me. But you can have a similar story. Maybe some of y'all heard the gospel when you were younger. Maybe some of y'all didn't hear it when you were older. But let me tell you briefly what God has done for me. I should be a statistic. My life should be a statistic. Do you know, especially males that grow up in a single parent house, tend to repeat the cycle of being in poverty, of being less educated, of being more likely to commit crime, and are more likely to father children out of wedlock and essentially replicate the cycle. Statistically, all of that is true. I was raised in a father with no home. I was raised in a home with no father. Sorry, y'all, I'm excited. (laughs) I was raised in a home with no father. I should be a statistic. And not only that, rural Georgia is relatively low on the socioeconomic scale. Now, my mama scrimped and saved and did everything she could. And I'm sorry, y'all, my mama's the best mama there is ever mama. She is. I will, I will not fight you, but I will argue with you gently and respectfully. But I'm sure anybody else who is a child of a single mom will tell you their mom is the best mama that's ever mama too. But that doesn't stop the march of statistics for most people. You want to know why I'm not a statistic? Because he who is mighty has done a great thing for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is on all who fear him from generation to generation. That's why. If you were here one Sunday night, I'll give you the brief version. You can rebuke me and get mad at me later. But I'll just tell you the truth. I cussed God out one night when I was in middle school. Because I was mad at the situation that he had put me in. Why? Jesus, why, when I have done everything I can to obey you, if y'all are going to be here tonight, we're going to talk about the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. When the older son says, I've been with you this whole time and I've always tried to obey you and why is it like this? Yeah, that was me. I'm at church every time the door opens. I try and obey you. I try and be a good kid. And all these other kids have their daddy taking them on hunting trips and fishing trips and camping trips and doing everything else. And I ain't seen them ever walk in the doors of a church. And you give them a nuclear family and not me? Why? And God was patient with me because he's good. Let me get it all out. And then he said, open your Bible, knucklehead. And I dare you to go to Samuel. I think it's 2 Samuel 7. Where Israel comes to Samuel and says, We want a king. And Samuel gets, and they said, We want a king so we can be like all the other nations. 
And Samuel gets upset and goes to God. And God says, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. You go back and you tell them this. If they want a king, I will give them a king. But he's not going to be like me. He's going to take their sons and put them in the military. He's going to take their daughters and make them concubines and perfumers. He's going to take the best of their produce. He's going to take the best of their animals. He's going to take the best of their money. And he's going to keep it all for themselves. And then they're going to realize the error of their ways. And they're going to cry out to me and say, we don't want a king. We want you. But it's going to be too late. I opened my Bible to that passage and I decided that night, God, you have blessed me with not having an earthly father because that means I get to ask you to do it. My soul has rejoiced in God, my Savior, and my Daddy. That's what God has done for me. What has God done for you? What's He done for you? Luke 8, verses 38 and 39. Now the man from whom... Jesus cast out some demons in his time. If you want to read the whole story, Jesus cast some demons out of a guy in Luke 8. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. In Psalm 119, 49 and 50, Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. The next time you are sharing the gospel with somebody, try moving away from generalities. Yes, share the gospel that is true for everybody. But don't leave without saying, let me tell you what God has done for me. Let me tell you what a difference Jesus has made in my life. Me, personally. And then you roll right to what Mary said next, which is, and His mercy is on all who fear Him from generation to generation. Here's my question for you. Maybe if you're, especially if you're not a Christian, do you want to experience the mercy and favor and goodness of God? Reverence Him. Fear Him. Believe in Him. Don't mock him. Don't turn your back because he's a good God waiting to be good to you. But you got to go to him. You got to give him a shot. He who is mighty has done and will do great things. So God regards the lowly. And second, God humbles the proud. Verses 51 through 53. She says, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. Now each of these three verses show divinely orchestrated reversals. The proud who seek to make a name for their strength are scattered by the strong arm of God. The mighty who are on their thrones currently are deposed and the lowly are exalted. The hungry are filled with goodness and the rich, those who uh, are typically known for being self-sufficient, are sent away hungry. Now let me pause here for just a second and, and make sure that we don't misinterpret what I just said on that last one. 
Because occasionally there are words used in the Bible that meant one thing then and mean something different now. Uh, rich does not mean necessarily in the Bible someone just someone who has a lot of money, a lot of wealth. There are plenty of wealthy people in the Bible who are also righteous. Abraham, for instance, is extremely wealthy. The Bible does not classify him as the rich. It classifies him as blessed. And when the Bible says the rich, and you can see this in James 2, these are people who consider themselves full, who consider themselves satisfied, who consider themselves above, who consider themselves not in need of God or His mercies because they have everything that they need. So when Mary says the rich, she, what she is basically saying is the people who thought that they didn't need God because they had enough of their own stuff, they found out that they did. So that's what she's talking about. So the hunger filled with goodness and the rich are sent away empty. Now it would be easy to read these three verses and think that these are general statements. That this is just what God does in general. That he shows his arm to be strong. He humbles the proud. He puts the mighty down from their thrones and exalts the lowly. And he gives the hungry good things. And says, these, are not, these are not general statements. These are also specific statements. That Mary is saying, God has done this, specifically. There's only one problem with that. Mary has not seen any of these things occur yet. Here's an interesting thing that sometimes prophets do in the Bible. Because by the way, right now, Mary is functioning as a prophet. Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, Correct? Right? When Mary is singing this song, she's speaking Scripture, correct? Who inspires Scripture? God does. So when Mary is speaking Scripture, guess what? Mary's a prophet right now. Something interesting that prophets do all the way throughout Scripture is sometimes they use past tense verbs to indicate future events. Why would they do that? Well, uh, some of y'all appreciate this, maybe. Some of y'all won't, at least not as much as I do. Um, y'all may not know this about me. I'm a sports fan. Uh, I love them so very much. And one of my favorite parts of college football is recruiting. It's like, yeah, we're always going to get the next, the next good guy. We want him to come in and win all the things. Well, sometimes before signing day, you can, you know, kind of look at, look at what they're saying, look at what people are thinking. You can say, that guy's gone. He, he didn't go to Georgia. That guy's gone. So wait a minute, what do you mean he didn't go? Signing day is it for two weeks. Yes, but it's so certain that it will happen in the future that you talk about it as if it has already occurred. That's what Mary's doing. That she is so certain that these events are going to occur that she is speaking about them in past tense. That God has done this. He's going to. It's coming. It's a certainty. That there are events coming in the future which Mary will see, which Jesus will see, which the disciples in the early church will see, in which the proud will be scattered in the imagination of their hearts. When's the last time you saw a Pharisee? Ever seen one? 
When's the last time you saw a Sadducee? Ever seen one of them? You know what's really funny is when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the entire religious Israelite ruling class got dispersed. There was no longer a seat of their religious power. You read the Gospels and you'll find out that the Pharisees and Sadducees were on Jesus' back the entire time. What happened? The temple got destroyed in AD 70 and their entire order scattered. They had no idea what to do. Scattered in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Uh, When you read... The, uh, the, the account of Jesus' birth, especially in Matthew. <clears throat> You'll find out that when the wise men show up, right? We're reading about, the, we were singing about the wise men uh, today. You know, when, when, when the wise men show up, they show up first in Jerusalem. And they come to Herod. And Herod says, what in the world are you doing? I mean, you got to think, these guys, by the way, these wise men probably weren't just three guys on camels like you see in the nativity scene first the bible never says there were three there could have been multiple we just assume that there are three because three gifts are listed but there could have been lots of them and they were probably wealthy they were probably persian they came from the east uh, and they show up because they have noticed something abnormal in the stars and they show up to jerusalem and say hey uh, the prophet said there's going to be a king born here and we've seen his star in the east and we came here to find him. Where is he at? Now, if you're Herod, you see them coming, you think they're coming to see you because there's only one king in town. And that's me. They came to my city. They came looking for a king. That's me. And they said, no, 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 no. We're not interested in you. Where's the child? Now, Herod didn't like that. There's only one gate room in this town for the both of us. Draw. That's effectively what he did. He said, there ain't room in this, in this Israel for two kings. Here's what you guys need to do. Hold on. Let me go speak to my guy. Where's he supposed to be born, y'all? Well, prophets say Bethlehem. Why don't you head off toward Bethlehem and you find him? And when you find him... Let me know where he is, because I would really like to go worship him too. Sharpen the swords, boys. So they go, okay, sure, this sounds great. So they head down to Bethlehem, and what do you know? They find him at this point. Jesus is probably, at the very least, a toddler, probably between one and two. I'm just destroying all our nativity scenes right now, I know. He's probably between one and two at this age. And they find him, and they worship him. And God warns these pagan Easterners in a dream. Yes, you, you found the right king. You're right in worshiping him and believing in him. But you don't need to go back the same way you did. That man lied to you. Go home another way. And again, they listen to God and they go home another way. And Herod is incensed. So Mary and Joseph get up because Joseph is warned in a dream. And they go to Egypt. And Herod is so panicked about losing his throne, he kills every child under the age of two that's male in Bethlehem. Slaughters them. And while they're in Egypt, after all this happens, a few years pass, and Joseph gets a dream that says, those who sought 
the child's life are dead. In fact, that's actually on your handout. It's Matthew 3, 19 and 20. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. That God has deposed the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. And if you think Herod's the only one who got put down, where's the Roman emperor today? He's gone. Where are the priests of Zeus and of Athena and of Apollo? And all of these people, all of these fake religions that thought they were going to outlast Jesus, gone. Relics of a distant past. And the rich he has sent away empty, he has filled the hungry with good things. Now, if you want to get really literal, think about the times that the Pharisees said, tell us where you're from, tell us where you're from, tell us where you're from. And Jesus said, I've been telling you. With every step I take, with every word out of my mouth, with everything I do, I've been telling you and you don't want to hear it. So you know what? You get parables. I'm sending you away empty. But these folks who believe me, who follow me, I'll stay after with them and I'll tell them what I mean. They get to be full. You get to go away empty. You religious bigwigs that think you have everything figured out. If you really want to know about Jesus feeding the hungry, I can tell you 9,000 people who were fed with small little amounts of food that Jesus turned into enough food for thousands. He fed the lowly, didn't he? He who is mighty does great things. Here's your application. What, What did all of these folks have in common that Mary is rejoicing that God has put down? They were bigger proponents of themselves and they were more bought into the success of the world than they were in the kingdom of God. And Mary says they have put us down and 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 and mocked us and ridiculed us and marginalized us and it has gone on for long enough and God finally has risen up to His people and said, no more. No more. James has a warning for those who think that this world is all there is and invest only in it. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here is my warning to you. Humble yourself before God. Bow before the one who was born in the manger. Do not exalt yourself against him. Do not spend your days and nights convincing convincing yourself he does not matter. Any of y'all ever listen to the Beatles? As weird as they are. Y'all ever listen to them? You can admit it. You can admit it. It's okay. The pew is not going to catch fire. It's not going to happen. Your pastor likes the Beatles. He does. It's okay. But John Lennon said something interesting one time. Do you know this? 
John, yes, John Lennon said lots of interesting things. Um, some of them when he was sober. Um, in an interview one time, asked about the Beatles' fame, John Lennon famously quipped, We're bigger than Jesus. Where's John Lennon? John Lennon is dead. Where is everyone who has ever said Jesus is a waste of time or is small or was a blip on a historical radar? Dead or quickly on their way there at the rate of 60 seconds a minute. Jesus deposes the proud from their thrones. He fills the lowly and he sends those who are convinced they don't need him away hungry. He shows his arm to be strong and scatters the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Do you know that that is worth rejoicing over too? You ever turn on your TV and say, there is no hope for this world as long as these people are in charge? It don't matter what letter behind their name. It don't matter what country they're in. You just pull your hair out and you go, oh my goodness. What are we going to do? Easy. The king is coming. The king is coming and nobody's going to slow him down. That one day he will rule and there will be no more of this shenanigans. Come Lord Jesus. So, God regards the lowly. God humbles the proud. And then finally, God fulfills His promises in verses 54 through 56. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His seed forever. And then we see that she stays with Elizabeth for three months before returning to her house. He has helped is also a verb that means a specific time. What is that? It's the birth of Jesus. That the coming of Christ is the promised help to Israel. What promise has God made that led Mary to say in remembrance? Now, does God forget things? No. No. When Scripture says God remembers, that just means that God has come back to a promise that He previously made and has fulfilled it. That Abraham had been promised land, seed, and blessing way back in Genesis 12. When God pulled Abraham out of the pagans of Ur and said, I'm going to make you a people. That I'm going to give you a land that's going to be yours. I'm going to give you offspring in which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Well, right about now, Israel feels pretty cursed. They're living in that land, but Rome is running it. Their offspring have been slaughtered and killed and marginalized and taken into captivity over and over and over and over again. And it seems like those who curse them are blessed. And those who bless them are cursed. That was their experience at the time. God made a covenant with David. God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 16. In which God tells David, there is a day coming 
in which I'm going to take, well, by the way, if that's 2 Samuel 7, that means I got my reference wrong earlier. I'll find it and I'll tell you if you want to know. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, David wanted to build God a house, and God said, when did I ever tell you to build me a house? David, I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to take one of your sons, and I'm going to put him on the throne, and he's going to stay on that throne forever. Well, where was the son of David on the throne? There wasn't even a throne for David to sit on. Rome was in charge. So it seems like all these promises of God had fallen by the wayside. But then came Gabriel. And Gabriel walks into Mary's house and said, Your son is going to be given the throne of his father David. And Mary says, Yes! Finally! Something fun we were talking about in Sunday school this morning is that you know, the, the greater part of Israel had forgotten the line of David because he'd been gone for so long. But do you know what? There was one little city made up almost entirely anthropologically of descendants of David. That little city was named Nazareth. It was not much larger than Stapleton. It only had a few hundred residents. Netzer in Hebrew actually means branch. It's David's little offshoot right here in the backwoods of rural Israel. Forgotten, ignored. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the answer is a resounding yes. Mary rejoices in God fulfilling His promises. And do you know that we, like Israel, were intended to be blessed? All of humanity was. That God put us in a garden. And He said, rule over this earth and subdue it. And we did. Until we listened to a snake instead of God. And everything turned on its head. Rome occupied the promised land and sin is occupying this promised earth. But Christ has come to fulfill the promise God makes in Genesis 3. And he has come to crush the head of that snake. He has come to give us back our blessing. He has come to fulfill every promise that God ever made to humanity. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. That if you say, where is God? Where are His promises? Where is my hope? Where is my life? Where is my light? Where is any good that God has for me? The answer, it's in Jesus. All of it. If you get Jesus, you get everything. If you skip Jesus, you skip everything. There's no other way. There's no blessing outside of Him. So come to Jesus. Christmas is His birthday anyway. Christians, let me ask you during this invitation, I want you to pray for those in here who don't know Jesus, that they would respond and they would come and receive the promises of God. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, I beg you, come to Him in whom all the promises of God are yet to name. Come to Him who regards the lowly. And don't run afoul of Him who will humble the proud. Miss Joyce and Miss Sandy are going to come lead us in a couple verses of an invitation here. I'm going to pray, and if you need to come, you come. You can come down this aisle, you can fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin, and you can catch me at the back door. But don't leave 
without responding to the call of the Holy Spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for today. Um, Lord, we thank you for your Son that you sent to us. The one that you sent to that one little town of no great renown because you had a promise to keep. Lord, we love you. We thank you for that. We're grateful for the grace you showed us in Christ. And I pray now for those who don't know him. Lord, that you would bless them with your mercy to come to you today. And let us as a church, Lord, just be privileged to see it and be part of it. I pray for those who uh, you're called to respond now, to draw them to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to page 86.